Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell. With me today is Steve Edwards. Hello from a surprisingly much cooler Portland, at least for now. At least for now. Solomon Aseme. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. My name is Solomon Aseme from Nigeria. And special guest today is Sean Wildermuth. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. I'm uh, glad to be on and I love talking about Vue. It's a great framework. I'm a big fan. <laughs> when I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Uh, Sean, for those who aren't familiar with you, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Sean Wildermuth, as Lindsay said, and I'm a trainer, developer. I've been in software for 30-ish years, 35 years maybe this year. i uh, Pluralsight author, so I teach a bunch there. I work with clients. I'm also a filmmaker. I created a film called Total World about inclusion and diversity in software development. And I'm also just started streaming on Twitch. In fact, I just did that right before our podcast today. Uh, building a uh, Vite or Vite, I don't know how to say it, project week by week uh, using Vue 3 and Vue X and all the other fun stuff. As I understand it from Evan, it's Vite. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'll ever get used to it. I'm still saying GIF. <laughs> the, the only correct pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> you just reminded me of a pick. Oh, okay. I got a pick for the Okay. Right. <laughs> Oh, cool. I'm curious, since I have not yet delved either into watching live streams or doing streaming myself, what is that like from your end, doing the content creation of a live stream with coding? It's weird, to be honest with you, in, in that I don't get a lot of feedback from the audience. And right now I'm getting, I already only did my second stream and I had maybe three people show up. So a lot more people are watching it afterwards. But my goal there is to, uh, I don't have a plan going in. I like, I know what, like the project I want to build, but I, I haven't built a script like I would for a course. So they, so the, the goal of the stream really is to watch people watch me fumble a lot because it, one of the things I don't see when I, I see um, a conference talks or uh, instructional videos is the, oh, I got to go look at the documentation. I don't remember what that's supposed to be or what is that called again or uh oh i have a bug let's fix the bug it's all a little too polished and so i'm sort of using twitch as a way to not only try to show some of the new stuff that i'm excited about but also show that some of your favorite uh, instructors or conference speakers that were just as human as any other developer that it isn't this like oh they must know everything no we search we google just as much as you do is sort of the is the long-term goal with the with the stream is to say you know we're we're just developers like anybody else and and uh, we have our you know the same struggles you have every day. I really like that. I remember when I was getting into programming, I was always just feeling really intimidated. Oh, I don't know everything. I haven't memorized everything. How am I? How am I ever going to do this? Yeah. And 
eventually I just got comfortable with not knowing it all and Googling it like, like most developers do. But it's really intimidating when you don't see that role model of, I don't know it either. I need to Google it. I don't know everything. It was a hard lesson for me. I, I um, went to a job that was with a lot of people way more experienced than I was. And before that, I'd always been the like one computer guy in, in a small office. And so I'd always like been the bright guy or the whatever. And I went to a company where I was clearly not the brightest guy in the room almost ever. And when I saw these people that I really admired, that I sort of had hero syndrome with, uh, go, I don't know, let's find out. It was like, it blew my mind apart. Like, oh, you don't remember either. So it, it sort of tore down that part of me that was trying to hold up that facade of, oh, I know everything. And the scariest thing in a, on a team to me is someone that won't say, I don't know. Yeah, whenever I've had interviews before, I've always liked to say, I know what I know, and I know what I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, the latter is more than the former at times. <laughs> but as long as you know where you're headed. Like, I mean, I think that's the, to me, that's the real magic of software development is it's it's a puzzle to figure out. And people thinking that it's this performative sort of, let's do it in this way, or I'll just sit down and write code. Like, as if typing were the main part of programming. This is one of those things that when people go, well, I was able to do this thing and you're going to be able to write 12 fewer lines of code. I was like, you don't understand. The typing is the least of the work of programming. It's figuring out what to type that is all the hard work. I don't care how many lines it takes. I care about you know, whether the concepts make sense and the, uh, later the code is maintainable and all these other things that aren't about lines or characters of code. It's interesting you mentioned that. I, I was just thinking recently, I used to work in an office as a freight forwarder, and I was just constantly doing data entry on one website, printing out documents, putting it into our own system. And my hands were really hurting, my wrists were really hurting, had to do exercises to avoid anything like carpal tunnel. Mm-hmm. Once I made that transition into programming, I didn't have that problem. Like I'm still working at the computer all day, but I'm not doing as much of that that heavy typing, that that manual work. It's much more... The, the mental and planning and processing of what's going on before you type. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's not like you don't need to type, but the the 12 things I write and then throw away before I'm like, oh, okay, this is now the way I want to do it. Is that, That's the hard part. Yeah. Another question I have for you before we get into our main topic, you've mentioned that you, you did, you've done courses, you've done videos, you've done tutorials, you did your own podcast. What got you interested in that side of the developer community that you wanted to teach rather than just be an engineer? Well, it's interesting. I think I wanted to uh, speak at conferences. That was really important to me because in some ways it was about my sort of imposter syndrome. I wanted to kind of beat that by going, oh, I can get in front of a group of people. And that sort of led me down this road of, of teaching kind of by accident. And what I learned was that I think I'm probably a better instructor than I am a coder. Like I, I, I accept that about myself now. And it was really hard at the time in that I spent a lot of my years programming. I'd spend two years at a company. And once we were ready to ship something, we'd ship it and I would leave because the the problem was solved, right? The, 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 the little tickle. And the problem of how to teach something is something that still continues to excite me. Like how to break down some new technology into a way that you can help people understand how it works instead of just sort of the thrashing. Um, and, you know, so my style is very much let's write code and learn from our mistakes. And that's sort of the most of the teaching I do. 
and I'm comfortable, of course, because of the the twitch as well, making mistakes in front of people and no longer having the sort of ego hit that I, I did earlier in my career from like, oh no, you're going to think that I'm stupid or whatever. I've, I've luckily gotten over that. And frankly, I also got into teaching because I spent a lot of time as a consultant. And as a consultant, uh, I often got caught with what I call the golden handcuffs, where the client was like, oh, one more thing. Oh, one more thing. And when you go into a client and you teach, let's say a five-day class and you leave, there is no one more thing. Like I could get to move on to the next thing that interests me or whatever it is. And that, that to me is very, very interesting. Uh, when I work at, um, when I teach at companies, there's always that first day or two where I'm like, I really miss being on a development team. And then by the fourth or fifth day, once I start to see some of the dynamics, I'm like, oh, that's why I don't do it anymore. Because <laughs> working with people can be a challenge. And, and teaching, I think, is probably what I was always meant to do. And I just happened to become a, a coder first because I get a lot more satisfaction from teaching than I ever did delivering code, to be perfectly honest with you. there's a, Delivering code was always a very temporary satisfaction. Like, oh, okay. Ooh, I got that done. That's wonderful. Oh, let me go back and look at the bug list and there's 400 things to fix. And it's this starting over and over and over again that uh, just wasn't great for my temperament. And I had to learn that, that, you know, I think everyone in software finds the things that they're that they're that they love and some people it's building frameworks some people it's building experiences for end users some people it's building back-end stuff some people it's teaching some people it's running communities and finding that thing that feeds you that feeds the that feeds what you want to be doing with your life that really is like i can go home and be happy is is what i think everyone should be trying to find because we're very lucky in this job that uh, our satisfaction matters in this job. And there's so many people out there who go in, put in their eight hours and go home and and their life isn't satisfied by that. And so they do things outside of their work um, to make them happy. And I'm blessed, lucky, whatever you want to call it, that uh, I've in this job, I'm able to get the kind of satisfaction, happiness I get from the actual work. That really speaks to me. I, I agree with that uh, on the satisfaction side. I think it's really cool that as developers, there's so many different roles that we can play. We can act, we can be engineers working on projects. We can be instructors or teachers. We've got DevRel. We've got DevOps. There's so many different things that you can do within the development sphere. Yeah, um, it's it's really a lucky place, like you said. I feel lucky, punk. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that, that's that, that quote is actually my ringtone for my brother because he's a huge. Dirty Harry fan. That's funny. So, you should tell the young people listening who Dirty Harry is, though. Oh, okay. Yes. For, <laughs> for the young and uninformed, Dirty Harry was a Clint Eastwood character from the 70s into the 80s. He was a recurring character in various movies. He was a San Francisco police inspector, not detective, he was an inspector. But that quote is from, I think it's the very, very first one with Scorpio. I think it's from Sudden Impact. No. No? Go ahead and make my day is from Sudden Impact. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're the right. Dude, that's the whole scene at the pond after they kidnapped the bus full of kids. Yeah, yeah. You're right. So enough about movies. <laughs> this has been your moment in movies. So before we dive into the main topic one more time, uh, what got you interested specifically in Vue, Sean? Well, I got interested in Vue early on. Well, early on, the early days of Vue 2, really, because I came from sort of the world of Angular JS first. 
And when anger, you know how many times I hear that story? That's true for me. I've heard that from more people yeah. than I can remember. And when Angular 2 and subsequent versions obviously came out, or Angular not JS, I don't know what to call it. Angular TS is what they should have called it. But it's just um, Angular, just Angular after two. I know, I know. I just I don't like it. <laughs> Does not make Googling it easier. But for small projects, I found it really difficult to do these small, concise things like creating a a contact page or a, f- a simple form because I've uh, I hate the term spa. I've always hated the term spa because in my mind there are use cases for having that sing uh, that singular monolith of an application. Mostly inside enterprises is where they're used to doing that because they're coming from VB6 or they're coming from web forms where they have this just kind of one giant code base and. For the web, I've always felt like we should be building these islands of functionality that we can use frameworks like Angular and Vue and React to build, but we shouldn't be building this monolith that takes over the whole screen. Like that's kind of been my, and and, and one of the things that I talked a lot about when I first got into Vue was like, you can opt into Webpack and TypeScript and all these other things to scale it up, but you can start by dropping view on a page and write some code, right? You can just start out small. You didn't have to understand all these terse topics to get started. Because if you think about it, to use Angular, um, you need to understand how classes work. You need to understand what decorators are. You need to understand how compilation, compiling, all of that works, how to debug these things that are not the code you wrote, but artifacts of the code you wrote. And so it's, in fact, it took Angular until I think version nine or 10 before you could have one Angular build create multiple smaller apps. That was a feature I wanted back in two and three, because that's kind of how I built things. And so I came into view in that and then started to get into how the CLI worked and was like, oh, I really like this. There's, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the configuration that early Angular was building for Webpack, but you were like, oh, suddenly I have 400 lines of of webpack.config to manage myself instead of this sort of the way Vue did. It was like, we're going to make the default options the right options. And then if you need to get complicated, then you can start to get into doing your own Webpack thing if you really need to. But the face of it was going to be as simple as possible. And so at that same time, I started looking at React as well. And JSX just makes me feel sad. <laughs> I know I'm I in the m- minority there. There are a bunch of people that really love that, that idea. And not, I'm not, not sure. on this show. Not on this show. I'm sure. majority. Well, what's interesting to me is I don't know that Single file components are much better than JSX, but they feel better to me because they really are separate. You aren't commingling. I've spent 20 years fighting over the having your code in the inline in the code, you know, back to classic ASP, going up to web forms and all these things where it's like, no, we need to we need to separate things. We can't we can't maintain them if they're so intermingled. And JSX just feels like it would be easy to do that. Though I haven't built a large project in it, and maybe I would love it. But because I already had Vue, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go back to where I don't feel bad. (laughs) And I've been using Vue, and I teach both Vue and Angular, and uh, I work with clients that work with both. I just don't, I don't know enough about React to 
to help clients with it. So I'm, I'm not in that space. But when I write for myself, it's almost always Fiba. It's just it's more comfortable. It makes more sense to me. Um, I like that. I feel like uh, Evan and company listen to the community more, the whole class components versus composition API discussion and then being willing to listen to the community and go, okay, maybe we're wrong. That that said a lot to me about how Vue was going to be treated in the community. Um, and that was important to me, that uh, it wasn't just this, we shall bring down the tablets of our framework and you shall consume them, which sometimes happens with frameworks. Yeah, I, I also appreciate how Evan interacts with the community. Sometimes I'll post questions and discussion topics on Twitter and he'll jump in and respond. So it's it's really nice to to participate in the Vue ecosystem, I feel, for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned in your in your Twitch stream you were working with Vite. How yes. do you feel about Vite compared to the Vue CLI? Since it, since they come at the pro- same problem from different directions, I'm curious what your your feeling is on that. I really like Vite uh, because you're really skipping the compilation step for the most part. I mean, they're doing Vite is doing some magic tricks when it consumes your API in order to make it work better with the module. But it feels like where we're headed in general. Like I feel like the building of components is is where we're headed and that we're going to be doing script.module, I mean, script-type module much more in the future instead of having these monolithic sort of Webpack or Browserify or whatever it is, these packages for you. And so not only do I think the startup experience is better, but that what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's, a, it's a view into the future of how we should be doing web development in many ways. I find the round tripping of changes Super quick. I really haven't run into any bugs with it, at least bugs that I've noticed enough to be annoyed by. Sometimes I have to refresh the page and such, but that's that happens with every every uh, uh, framework that uses that stuff. And so, almost exclusively, I've, I've been using Vite for all my new projects. I have an article coming out, I think, next issue of Code Magazine, where it kind of explores Vite and tries to get people comfortable with it and why it exists and why it works and all that. I haven't tried to use it with any of the other frameworks but Vue, so there may be pluses and minuses for using it with React and P-React and some of the other projects that it also supports. Because I like that it's not just tied to Vue either. Like, oh, this is this is really a project runner, not anything else like that. So, big fan. Yeah, that's one of the features I am really interested in as well, that it can support other frameworks. I think the the Svelte team is adopting it for SvelteKit. Uh, it's supposed to be the the main runner for the development environment in SvelteKit. That makes sense. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Svelte's one of those that I feel like a little too opini- opinionated for me, where they want things to kind of be exactly one way in order to get the most efficiency. And and so I, I haven't spent a lot of time with Svelte kind of because of that. In, in some ways, Svelte reminds me a lot of, wow, I'm not going to be able to remember the name of that framework. Some other frameworks that were created back in the day that uh, are still being used, but aren't as popular. Um, I don't understand why. There's not many JavaScript frameworks out there, are there? Well, <laughs> it's it's 2.30 on the East Coast, so we should only have three new ones today. <laughs> at, least yeah. at least it's not a leap year. Exactly. One of the, you, you asked me earlier about like why I got into teaching versus uh, development. And this is sort of one of those. My job these days is to learn the newest stuff, sometimes stuff that's never going to get used, but sometimes stuff like Vite that I think are going to be used pretty widely, and then get to teach them to people. So I get to stay on sort of that bleeding edge that 
as a developer would be so painful. Like having to like, oh, let's just switch our project to this new thing and let's switch our project to this new thing, like constantly moving. What, that's one of the things I love about teaching is it, it allows me to stay sorting at, at the bleeding edge and make the mistakes. Like I've, I've picked the wrong horse a dozen times in my career. I'm probably wrong more than I'm right, but that discovery process is really exciting to me. Awesome. Yeah. I, I think it's fun to be on that bleeding edge, but definitely working with clients, working with customers, they don't want to be on the bleeding edge. No. They don't, they don't want to bleed. <laughs> no. No, and they don't need to in most cases. I have some clients that come to me and like, I heard about this new XYZ. Should we be concerned about it? I'm like, no, you're building a CRM. Keep on building it. Like, don't don't change course. You're fine. Right. Like, you're not going to get any benefit out of blockchain. <laughs> right? That's a classic yeah. Gilbert cartoon where the pointy-haired boss hears some of those words and say, hey, we're going to use this going forward. And yeah. Gilbert's just cringing. Yeah, it's it's it's... You have to let things live and die and live and die. And a lot of times they'll live and die while you're still plotting forward on your path. And you go, oh, I guess we didn't need to do that. See, just stay on course. Building solutions is way more important than than uh, updating your resume. That's kind of how I feel about development is I'm much more interested in like the people that are able to see something through than that they have the late, latest buzzwords on their resume. Yeah, at my uh, last company, I was I was there while Vue three was still in beta, and I'd come into the office and have you heard about the new features in Vue three? This is so cool! And then I'd have to reassure everybody: No, we don't need to upgrade. We don't want to do that. That's not what yeah. I'm saying. But it's really cool, and I just want to share because it it's exciting. It is. But we don't we don't want to do it. We we really don't want to do it. No, don't want to take and especially a beta, especially a beta. Right. One of the things I, I have like as well is um, I help out with a project called Humanitarian Toolbox. It's Richard Campbell's nonprofit that helps with like emergency rescue and stuff. And they're building a Vue project right now in Vue 2, mostly because Vueify doesn't work with Vue 3 yet. And they were kind of committed to Vueify. And when I came in, I have uh, have, uh, given up on uh, the Options API some time ago. I'm really like I'm really knee deep into the composition API. I really like it a lot better than the options API. And because of the way that a view has been built, I can do that. Like I w- was able to go in there and my views are written in the composition API. Some of the older views are written in the options API. We're using view two. Like I don't have to compromise in that there's some commitment to backporting issue things that can still work in Vue 2 without having to go to Vue 3. Composition API is, is one of those. And so we're able to sort of allow me to develop at the speed I can develop in what I'm most comfortable in without having to think about upgrading the whole project or trying to figure out how to shim in Vueify into Vue 3 or any of that. Leave it be, and I was just able to con- contribute without having to ask them to change the world because of my proclivities. And I think that's a good approach to be able to support the the different development needs of different projects. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of new development and development needs of different projects, you wrote a blog post recently about managing shared state in Vue 3 in particular Yeah, uh, that I thought was really interesting and came at the, the problem in a few different ways, some of which people might not have thought about before. 
especially since in Vue 2, the default for state management, you just immediately reach for Vuex and don't think twice. Yeah, absolutely. Would you mind talking a bit about that article? Sure. I'll see what I can remember what I wrote. But <laughs> the uh, what's interesting is Vue 3 really opens up how easy it is because of the sort of opting into reactivity instead of some of the magic that's in, let's say, the options API. It allows you to really compose your state management. And so being able to do things like um, having just shared objects that uh, allow you to have state management for simple projects or to use sort of factory patterns to be able to bring in state management and share them amongst different components and still using Vuex in some cases where you really have that complexity. I don't think there is a one single solution for anybody. In fact, uh, I did a, a longer version of that that blog post in a in a Code Magazine article where I actually dug into Vue uh, X5 as well as an option, even though it's not hasn't been written yet. Oh yeah, it wasn't Code Magazine. Thank you for whoever put that in there. It's uh, in Smashing Magazine. I forgot which <laughs> where I wrote it, but it really is. What are your needs? Vue X for me still maintains when you have a lot of complexity and you're worrying about side effects, it's still the go-to place for me for large projects. It's more work. It literally is more work, but it also maintains that you only have one code path going through mutating state. But when you're creating small components or small pieces or small applications, that's not going to matter. Like I'm never going to bring in Vuex when I create a contact page or simple like a workflow through a, a shopping cart, like none of that's going to matter in these smallish sort of projects. And so why bring in something where the amount of work you're doing is so much higher when you're doing Vuex? You need to get a payoff for that as far as I'm concerned. Vuex 5 is interesting to me because they're trying to make things sort of halfway between simple objects and Vuex. And one of the things that they've proposed getting rid of is the big feature that I think Vuex brings, and that is protection from mutation. And so I don't really agree with what they're doing, but I understand why they're doing it. Like they want to make Vuex simpler for people to use. And so they're trying to sort of trim down that model to where it's a bit easier because the idea of having the shared state and then having to use computed or map state in order to get them in the views it just takes a little bit to get your head around what's actually going on with these pieces to 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 be comfortable with them. And of course, if you introduce TypeScript, making that all type safe, even Vue 4, you can do it, but it, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. And usually I, I live with Vuex not being type safe. Like w- internally within it, it's type safe, but I'm not trying to expose a type safe wrapper or Type libraries back to the code that uses Vuex. I just live with it not being necessarily type safe, where I can misname a uh, an action or a mutation, and I'll have to fix it as a bug because it just maintaining that type library for it is just a headache. And um, hopefully, Vue five will solve that, or Vue X five, I should say. Hey folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to 
whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then we'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have the situation how do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. Yeah, I, I gave a talk earlier this year about using a Vuex with TypeScript. And it, it was an hour long talk because just getting through the different boilerplate of how you handle mutations and how you handle actions so that everything is type safe in your components is just, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, totally it, it, at least it's it's possible now. Like in Vue 2, it was impossible. Like there was just no way to make it work. So I feel like we've we've gone that one step forward, but we're not there. We're clearly not there. And so the next piece of that really is going to be one that's more easily or more importantly, inferred typing, right? Because that's really what we want out of something like Vuex is we want it when we bring in the uh, store or whatever we want, we want it to infer those types. And right now, because a lot of them are using magic strings, Vuex needs to change because of that. So a while ago, we had an episode on Vuex. UX or uh, view stores, kind of Joseph Zimmerman. And one of the things we talked about was Pina. Have you seen the Pina? I've uh, seen the, the word float around, but I haven't used it. I, I do think it's interesting because out of view three, a bunch of people are like, oh, we don't have to use UX. And so there's now like 30 libraries for handling state in, in view that are sort of competition for it. Some are super simple, some are frankly, overly complex. I think it's interesting that these different approaches really meet different needs. But at the end of it, a lot of the projects I'm doing or the, a lot of projects I'm consulting on, we're just using objects. Put a um, reactive wrapper around an object and just go about our day. And that, that, that seems to solve most of the problems, both with yeah, type an, safety. There was a blog post that I saw from June of July of last year that might not need UX with U3 at all. And that's sort of along the lines of what you were just talking about. It's just basically objects and components that can, you know, with the composition API that you can share things in between components. The real magic there is now that we have ref and reactive and maybe dollar sign ref, which we could talk about if you want to, that means we can handle reactivity in some ways, similar to the way that uh, React.js is RxJS is handled in Angular, where we can opt in instead of letting the framework sort of magically fix it for us, which is one of the reasons I prefer the uh, composition API, because I feel like it's a little bit more like, oh, I need this to be reactive. Oh, I need this. This doesn't need to be reactive. It's going to be read-only forever. And, and so I can opt into those pieces as needed. 
So you want to, yeah, can you redefine those, define those terms you just mentioned, ref and what was the other one? Sorry. Reactive. Yeah, ref and reactive. So ref is a wrapper around usually a scalar component, but it doesn't have to be scalar, that allows it to alert whoever's uh, subscribed to it that changes have happened. And what that forces us to do is when we set a value, we have to do piece of data dot value equals. And then that will let anybody knows that's using that ref value that it's changed. For more complex objects like arrays or objects or classes, you can use reactive, which is a proxy wrapper. So where you could use it normally, but it's gone through a proxy. So there's some performance impact there, but you're going to get that same reactivity for the entire tree of a component, not just the value of a component. I'm sorry, I keep on saying component. I mean, the value of an object or you know a scalar type. And so what was happening in view two with the options API was when you set stuff to be data, they were wrapping them for you. And they would magically go, oh, okay, this is going to, you're, Everything's going to be reactive. I need to worry about all these pieces. Whereas by using ref in reactive, we're trying to tell you what we need to be notified about. So if I have a read-only list of, let's say, the countries of the world, it's never going to change. I'm just using it as a drop-down. It doesn't need to be reactive. It's not going to change. We're not going to suddenly add a new country while you're on the website, right? And so you can decide what parts of your, your data need to be reactive and what which don't. That can impact performance because you don't have all this wire-up code for, for pieces of data that just aren't as important. But more importantly, then you can make your own objects reactive so that you can get some of the shared state. Oh, I'm just going to import my invoice collection into two different views in, a, in an application. And when one changes, the other one's going to be notified because they're reactive. Does that make sense? Yeah, to me it does. Absolutely. Great. Going back to the the state management part, there was a, a bit ago I was experimenting with this idea of, do I really need Vuex? Can I really just replace it with the composition API? And it was really fun to experiment with. It felt, I, I really got to experience how powerful the, the composition API can be. Created a basic store function. I could define a store, kind of like what Pinya does. Yeah. The define store function. And then I'd have my data set, and then I could look things up by ID. I was trying to make it act kind of like a database. So as I pull things in from a REST API, I could just store them and access them by ID. Yeah. And it, was, it felt really good to work with. I, I really liked how the Composition API was able to expand beyond just a single component and act as a global state management. I, I really enjoy that part because we're getting back to just writing JavaScript. Like The whole idea of the way the Composition API works is that oh, these are just closures. Like, there's no magic here. It's just closures, and I'm returning just the parts of the API or j- just the parts of the code that I need to expose through the UI, which often is, there's often there's pieces that just don't belong or aren't needed by the API. They're just communicating with each other. And I just released a, uh, a video about the setup script. I have a, a video series called Coding Shorts, and I did a, one about uh, Vue 3.2's final, finally has released the setup script version. And I understand why people like it, because it is simpler, there's fewer lines of code, but there's too much magic for me. I mean, it really, I just want to, I want to, ha- you know, I'm a control freak. And so knowing what I'm exposing to the UI is worth the couple of extra lines of code to me. And knowing that I'm not exposing every piece of information to the UI 
just makes sense to me because one of the, you know, one of the tricks here, and I'm going to forget the the name of the of of the operator suddenly, the spread operator, is that often I will bring in something into the composition API like my state management, but instead of just adding that as a something to bind to, I'll use the spread operator to make it just a bunch of properties that I can then bind to. So I can simplify sort of the tree of information that I'm getting in the UI. And it allows me to build it in the in the idea of objects, but be able to deal with it as simple scalar types. I don't know if I over-convoluted that answer, but uh, we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very interested in this script setup. I, I like it. I also like Svelte, so I, I like the kind of magic uh, right. that you can provide with a framework. And you mentioned something that I, I just learned about today that apparently looking at the start date started last month is a proposal for adding dollar sign ref and dollar sign other functionality that applies to the, the composition API when using script setup right. that takes that magic to the next level. It does. Um, the, what, what's that? Because I, I just learned about it. So I'm curious so, what you know. Dallas ref is an experimental feature. You have to opt into it with Vue 3.2, so you can't just start using it. I actually have a video coming out tomorrow that shows how to use it. Oh, wait, no, no. The video I released today uh, shows how to use it. I forgot. And the idea here is that instead of using ref and getting back an object that you have to call dot value to set the value of, it does the magic of just being able to set it. It effectively creates a proxy around it sort of temporarily so that in your code, you no longer have to call dot value on refs, but you do need to define them with this dollar sign ref. And there, you know, there's something about, there's something about dollar sign in view that when I see it, I know there's magic there and I sort of pull back a little. <laughs> it's like uh, even using Vuex, when you say using Vuex and you want to go ahead and use it in your application, it's magically making it appear through the tree of components for you. But I almost never use Vuex in that way. I almost always import it into every class I want because I want to know exactly what I'm getting. Like I want the code to explain itself. And I think that's one of the benefits of Vue is that we're given these different options. There isn't the one option that meets every developer or every organization's need. Obviously, especially if you're coming from different frameworks, something like Setup Script feels a lot more like the original options API or feels a little bit more like the way uh, Angular used to define their properties, like being able to deal with them as scalar types with $ref uh, certainly appeals to a lot of people. And so I'm hoping that we continue to have these different options. Like even the class components are still there, even though I hope no one's using them. But <laughs> I mean, in many ways, I left loving Angular as much because of class components. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the class plus decorators idea. It feels, it feels very much like I, I've spent the last 20 plus years in, in .NET and I love .NET for a bunch of reasons, but that style is very much even the .NET C-sharp that I don't like, which is, what do you mean a third of my logic is not in the actual code I'm writing? And that's, that's what some of that feels like. That makes a lot of sense. When I look at this proposal to have the dollar sign ref I remember the discussions I see on Twitter between Evan and Rich Harris, creator of Svelte. And I feel like those two really have this kind of, I don't even want to call it a rivalry, but a friendly rivalry is they're, is they're working on their two frameworks. And they're, they're really adopting each other's ideas and kind of consulting with each other and trying to, to build the best thing that they can build for their individual project view in Svelte. 
Yeah. And I think that's reflected in this proposal. And looking at it, it looks the the basic example very much looks like Svelte code. The only difference being instead of just saying let count equals one, you've wrapped it in this dollar sign ref. Right. That's that's really the only difference between Svelte and view at this point on that component. What's interesting to me is it feels like the Evan hasn't released it, but you sort of talked about being able to use it. Is this micro view or I can't remember what he actually called it. Petite view. Petite yeah. view. Yeah. Pettit view. What, uh, Pettit view. Are you a Yankee fan? Oh, hell no. Uh, petite view. It, that seemed very much a experiment in doing some of the stuff that, what's his name, that Svelte is doing. Like how small can we, how can we look at as small of the component as possible? Like the minimum thing you might need. And I suspect Petite View will become the sort of view core at some point and that you can start opting into each of these pieces. Um, because I'm on the fence about how important number of bytes library are. I don't think it matters as much as a lot of people do. A lot of people are worried about the the size over the wire and all of that. Most of our applications aren't single use. You can take the contact form as maybe something closer to single use, but a lot of the applications we're building they're cached in the browser and they're used for you know a week or a month without actually loading them over the wire again. And so the size of the framework becomes less important. As long as startup speed is quick, is quick, that's the only reason I would think that the number of bytes matters at some point is, is speed of, of booting, essentially. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think I think that's reflected in some of the some of the frameworks that are out there that have really good start times and really good responsiveness but maybe have more than five kilobytes of right. compressed code like Petite View. Yeah. It's sort of like uh, Blazor is trying to do this with WebAssembly, but the startup time is horrible because they're essentially shipping the entire .NET framework as WebAssembly that has to get loaded before anything else loads. And they're certainly working on making that better, but that's why I've discounted Blazor. I'm like, I can't, I can't tell my clients to wait 20 seconds for, you know, even though it's WebAssembly, it's still... Still a lot of code. Still a lot of bits that have to be loaded yeah. into the in, into the browser. So, one of the things looking at Petite View and kind of reflecting on our conversation, I I really like that Evan and as a consequence of that view as a framework is able to scale up or down depending on what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, at at this point at the low end, you've got Petite View. If you just need really quick something, you can get a component made in Vite that you're then able to bundle into a standard website. You can scale either Vite or the Vue CLI up for a full single-page application. You have things mm -hmm. like Nuxt if you need server-side rendering on a full-on JavaScript-type application. And reflects well on how, how flexible Vue is and how it can be used by multiple businesses for multiple use cases. I've got the, the Vue dev tools, as most of us do, I'm sure. And I, I notice when certain websites are using Vue and what, when some pages are on Vue, some pages aren't. I've noticed, for example, the Zoom loading page is using Vue. That doesn't mean all of Zoom is using Vue, just that one yeah. page to start the application. But I really appreciate how Vue is able to scale up or down depending on the need. And with the composition API, as you as you highlighted in the article, the, the global state management solution is also able to scale up or down. You can use the composition API in a single component, or you can abstract it to a factory, or you can use Vuex, or you can use something else like Pinya. Yeah. It that's to me has always been the strength of view is this opt in instead of opt out sort of mentality. 
there's a slide I use in a lot of my talks about Vue where I talk about the difference and just being able to get started so quickly without having to, people coming to Vue that aren't coming from Angular or Svelte or something that just haven't touched modern JavaScript techniques, Vue is a pretty low bar. Oh, I'm just creating an object and I'm doing this. And even they're using the options API, like they don't have to, they don't have to grok all these different concepts just to do hello world. And that's that to me is 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 a huge saving grace for it. Now, once you start to see the benefits of using the CLI or using Vite or whatever the case may be, you'll certainly probably want to head there. But as a starting point, you don't have to understand the world of modern JavaScript just to to do your first view project. And I think that adds the stickiness of view, like, oh, this is just a simple framework. View in some ways really scratched the itch I had around something as simple as Knockout from back in the day, right? To drop two JavaScript files, create a, a structure for the data you want to uh, do, and then just write some even markup, not even in the component, but directly on the page, and it'll work. Now, would you build a giant website using that? Maybe not. And then you can sort of scale up. And so I, I wholly concur with what you're saying. That's, I think, the reason I've stuck around with you so long. Yeah, I think that's my favorite aspect of it by far. Sean, before we wrap up, if you were going to, as a teacher, you do this actually, if you were going to introduce somebody new to Vue and, and just get them started on building something, what would you, what, what would be your first steps? What, what tools would you start with? And what direction would you go for building the first view code? I actually would start like where I, I often start, and that is just with the non-bundled version of view. Like I literally would, depending on what they know, like if, if I'm going to assume that they're not that familiar with JavaScript or maybe even web development, I would certainly start with, you know, just pointing an unpackaged link to view and let's write a little code and get the simplest maybe form working in Vue so they can see how why data binding is such a powerful and important concept. Like that's, to me, where everything sort of lays on top of is simple one-way or two-way binding and, and understand why that's important. From there, I'd probably take them straight to Vite or Vite these days. So I would take them to, because I like that Vite, I don't have to get them into understanding that they're compiling and that we have, they have to wait for a compile maybe or what watches or any of that sort of thing. They can just start writing code and it'll be sort of embedded in the project and they can actually see the code. You know, one of the things that I never fell in love with with uh, the CLI was this magic index.html when you wanted to serve it, that it was going to inject the the script tags in. That always made me like nervous and so being able to go oh this is the actual html that's going to be served and this is where your you know your main.js or ts is going to be and and go from there and and uh slowly go okay let's take all this code you've written in main.js and let's break it up into two files oh okay we'll take it from there okay now let's talk about components or whatever it is but it's a sort of step by step of seeing something work instead of sort of tying them into Let's make sure you understand all the basics. Because once people start to go, well, how do I? Then you can sort of opt into the next level. That's kind of where I like to uh, get people interested in, in topics is instead of having the 
this is the entire diagram of how view or whatever the technology fits together. Ignore that. Let's go and just open up a, an editor and let me show you something work that works. And that, I think, piques that curiosity much more than wanting to know the world necessarily. I like that. I feel like it also highlights the, the point that view is not reliant on a compiler or a, yeah. a build step. You can just inject it anywhere and have at it. And I wouldn't be surprised if once the browsers catch up with module, with script modules, that some people will actually deliver simple classes without ever compiling them, right? Or simple components to where they would just say module and let the browser go ahead and load the different files ad hoc because not everything we build needs to be tuned within an intuit's life, right? I'm building an internet. Five people are going to visit it a day and all I need to do is be able to accept when their vacation time is. Do I need that to be compiled and work on four, 14 different browsers? Probably not. Well, great. Thank you so much, Sean. This has been an excellent episode. Awesome. I'm glad. Uh, I'm, as anyone who knows me knows, I love the sound of my own voice, so I'm happy to do it. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. So at this point, we're going to move into picks. Picks are the part of the show where we share things we like with the tech community. It doesn't have to be programming-related. Steve, do you have a pick for us today? I have more than one pick. Actually, believe it or not. Awesome. And one of my picks is contains dad jokes. So it's a two for one. So I'll start out. Uh, we were talking earlier about Richard Harris, the guy that's created some belt by with a blog post by him. Came across this from one of the JavaScript newsletters I get from uh, Bytes, the Bytes, Tyler from UI.dev, one of the best newsletters out there. And so a little while ago, the Chrome devs made an announcement that in short order, they were going to be disabling the alert, confirm, and prompt dialogues from cross-origin iframes. According to them, the current UX was confusing, and there were security concerns, and so on. And so the rust arose a great hue and cry. One of the main ones raising concerns about this was Chris Coiler from Shop Talk Show, and who runs CSS Tricks and CodePen. And his note was that we use these quite a lot because we use cross-origin iframes on CodePen. That's how you separate the code from the from the you know the actual running of the code. And so he was like, "Yeah." And one of the uh, the Chrome devs, Dominic Nicola, came back and said, uh, "It's best that such teaching sites be prepared for the eventual end state where these are removed from the web platform entirely." So yeah. Quite a lot of uh, talking done in many places about this. So Richard's post uh, does a pretty good job detailing uh, what's going on, why they wanted to move it, remove it, and, and some of the consequences. Second of all is I mentioned earlier that uh, Sean had inspired me with a mention of the pronunciation of the word GIF, which is GIF, not GIF, by the way. But uh, there's a great Babylon B post about this exact thing. If anybody knows Babylon B is, it's a satire site. Very funny. One of my favorites. 
And the name of the post is Debate Settled, Experts Confirm GIF is pronounced GIF. And it goes through, and you can imagine the interpretation when you're reading all the ways to pronounce GIF and you're not hearing it <laughs> verbally. So it's uh, it's a pretty funny little, little post. And then finally, recently, Disney put out a movie based on their Jungle Cruise ride called, oddly enough, Jungle Cruise. And... There's and it stars Dwayne the Rock Johnson, he of the former wrestling fame and now action type actor fame. And there's one scene in there where he tells a bunch of jokes, uh, dad type jokes. My son actually saw the movie. I haven't seen it yet, and he told me about it because he knew what my interest in. So there's about three or four jokes he uh, he reels off. Uh, and one that I really liked is along my favorite type of dad jokes about fired jobs I've been fired from previously. Uh, and his was about being fired from the orange juice factory because he couldn't concentrate and uh, they really put the squeeze on him and so on. So it's a little short. Uh, there's multiple versions of it on YouTube. I'll put one that has all the jokes on that, but it's it's quite entertaining. And those are my picks. Excellent. Thank you. Sean, do you have a pick for us today? I'll give you two and neither of them are programming related because I think we should all be relaxing a little more. The first is an HBO show called Mayor of Easttown, M-A-R-E, not Mayor, but Mayor, M-A-R-E, of Easttown. Probably the best show I've watched in the last four or five years. It's only like seven episodes on HBO Max. Big fan of it. And I'm also going to mention a video game I've been playing that is kind of old, but I'm obsessed with it. It's called Grim Dawn. I'll put the link in the chat so you guys can share it you can get it for almost nothing on steam but it's an amazing little game that uh has had me obsessed and obviously wasting time and the editor at plural site is probably mad that my course was a couple of days late because of it um so everyone should check that out if they're into video games awesome i'll check it out my two picks today first is a book that i finished reading recently for those longtime listeners of the show you know that i've been reading the expanse very slowly uh, so I just finished book four, Sibylla Byrne. Won't spoil too much of it if you haven't read the previous books, but it is excellent and sets up a lot of interesting stuff going on in the series. Highly recommend The Expanse as a series if you are into science fiction. The second pick that I have today is a YouTube video of a presentation that I participated in. Part of what I do is contributing as a consultant at the Wikimedia Foundation, and I've been working on a project called Abstract Wikipedia. Very, very briefly, it is intended to provide a language agnostic version of Wikipedia that can then be procedurally translated into natural language. So we are currently working on the, the function level of that called wiki functions. Highly recommend checking out the video if you're interested. It's going to be a new wiki as part of the media, Wikimedia Foundation's suite of applications. It's very exciting to be a part of and work on. Speaking uh, of Wikimedia, didn't they just adopt Vue? They did. As a front end, funny you should mention that. Yeah. In a few weeks, we're actually going to have a guest from the Wikimedia Foundation join us for a podcast episode and talk about that. Exciting. Spoilers for the future. So yeah, definitely recommend checking out that video if that sounds interesting to you. Sean, where can people find you if they want to continue this conversation or just participate in some of the things that you've been putting out? Sure. I mean, uh, you can find me at, at on Pluralsight. I have uh, 24, 25 courses there. You, my blog is at wildermuth.com, just like my last name. And uh, I'm on Twitch and Twitter, both with Sean Wildermuth as my tag name, because I'm not 
creative enough to use underscores. And you can even find me on uh, TikTok at Sean Wildermuth as well. So pretty much any platform you're working with, underscore, um, I'm sorry, just Sean Wildermuth, my full name, you'll find me there. And I'll put in the last plug if you haven't had a chance to watch my film, Hello World, helloworldfilm.com. We'll list all the different places you can find it. There uh, is free streaming on Tubi, uh, which is an ad-supported platform. And then there's pay-per-view in 88 countries and obviously the U.S. and Canada, and et cetera. So if you'd like to watch the film and you're interested in uh, diversity and inclusion in our business, hopefully the film will convince you of, of why it's so important. Excellent. Thank you. Make sure to put some links in the show notes for that. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as well. You can find more of us at viewsonview.com or devchat.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at viewsonview. You can find myself on Twitter at Lindsay K. Wardell. You can find Steve on Twitter at Wonder95. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again next week. Adios. Bye. Hasta la vista. Ciao. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.